The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. The scripture that I'd like to reflect on with you this morning is from Paul's first letter to Timothy. I'll begin reading at verse 12 of chapter 1 to the end of the chapter. 1 Timothy 1 at verse 12. Paul writes, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But, at that, but for that very reason I was shown mercy that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now, to the King, eternal, immortal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. I'd like to focus for just a few minutes on the closing verses of this uh, section. And perhaps you noted as we were reading that Paul begins by focusing on himself, his own ministry, and in a highly autobiographical way. But as we come to uh, verse 18, he turns attention away from himself and on to Timothy and addresses Timothy and the ministry to which he's called and, the and says something as to the character of that ministry. And this is, uh, we must be sure to appreciate, not something just addressed to Timothy because the apostle uh, in the larger design of his uh, own ministry, is addressing Timothy as he makes provision for the post-apostolic future of the church. So Timothy is being addressed here as a model, as an example of what is to characterize all ministry that would build upon the apostolic model. Now what uh, the apostle tells us then in verse uh, 18 as a fundamental characteristic of this ministry is that it involves fighting the good fight. This is basic. This is controlling. It reflects on Paul's own ministry. Later on in this letter he will say, summing up his own ministry, I have fought the good fight. 
And he wants us to understand then, he wants Timothy and us to understand that that's not only to be true of his own autobiography, but for every gospel ministry. Whatever differences there may be between various ministries, in various times, in various places, there is this constant, there is this one thing that the Christian ministry is a struggle. It involves a battle. It's a ministry. It's not simply a ministry. It's a way of life that can be summed up as fighting the good fight. Not only in its public aspects, but in its private moments as well. We don't have the time here to amplify on that, but uh, look at some time at what Paul has to say about that in his account of his own ministry in Acts 20 to the Ephesian elders. What Paul accents here is that this is a good fight. And a good fight, I think we can say, uh, from a number of different angles. It's good in the way it's fought. It's fought cleanly. It's good uh, for the purpose that it's being fought, for the truth. But it's also good, I think we can suggest here, in terms of its outcome. There's an element of hope, of promise here, the fight that those involved in the ministry of the gospel are involved in is a good fight. Now, verse 19, we can say, gives us further then some indication of what the apostle refers to elsewhere as the weapons of this warfare. And here he says it's a matter of having or holding to faith and a good conscience. As the NIV puts it, holding on to faith and a good conscience. I think it's interesting to reflect on why uh, Paul uh, puts that, brings just that into the picture here in this matter of fighting the good fight. And I think what we have to recognize here that in saying it just this way, the apostle uh, has expressed himself in a very suggestive way. He is saying really something more because faith, you see, is never an end in itself. Faith doesn't mean anything by itself. For the New Testament, to say faith, to talk about faith, is always to say something more than faith because faith, faith is nothing. Faith is inseparable from its object. And that object, of course, is Christ. So when uh, Paul is saying here to uh, Timothy to hold on to faith, he is saying uh, hold on to Christ, reminding him that his trust must be in Christ. And in a similar way, good conscience, you see, is, is not just some uh, psychological condition. It's not just a frame of mind. It's not just uh, peace, uh, being at peace with yourself. But it results, the good conscience in view here, results from a careful, sensitive application of the gospel, we can say. An application of those things in our own lives. So to connect it to faith, we could say that this good conscience then is that which is uh, the result or, or bound up with the practice of faith. So what Paul is bringing into view in this matter of fighting the good fight is that what counts is faith and the practice of faith focused on Jesus Christ. But the apostle doesn't stop there. As so often and is as so often necessary, verses 19 and 20 take us 
in a negative way. He makes his point negatively. You see, he is referring there to those, in effect, who have not kept faith and a good conscience. Now, there can be some, uh, for the exegetes, uh, there can be some question here how to connect um, the uh, latter part of verse 19 to the first part, particularly the reference to faith and a good conscience. But I think that the, uh, the focus here, the edge, let's put it that way, of what Paul is saying is, is on that matter of a good conscience. And he's suggesting to us here that the rejection, the rejection, the shipwreck, begins with a certain carelessness, a certain indifference in Christian living and in practicing the gospel. And the result then of that carelessness, of that uh, rejecting of the good conscience, that result is captured here in a very vivid image of the shipwreck, the shipwreck of faith. However we would understand faith, whether as an act of believing or a, a content that is believed, the collapse is total. And so there's a warning here to us, a warning to Timothy, to all other gospel ministries, ministers, of, of what can result from rejecting stifling, silencing the conscience. Paul has in view here, uh, we can say, a moral derailment, which more and more, you see, eats away at our sensitivity to truth. Uh, a, um, a violating of conscience in one way or another that more and more undermines our ability to, to discern true from false, right from wrong. And Paul, uh, as we bring into view what he says elsewhere, reminds us how that works out, that happens, uh, that, that violation of conscience happens until the conscience becomes insensitive. It's as if it were seared with a hot iron, he says later in this uh, letter. And what happens then is that ultimately, the violated conscience gives way to finally uh, believing and propagating all sorts of lies and errors. It can bring you to the point where now in all good conscience, openly, unabashedly, you blaspheme. The example he gives here is of this individual Hymenaeus, and we know something about him uh, further from what Paul has to write over in 2 Timothy 2. There he characterizes Hymenaeus as being involved with another, uh, um, another individual in empty chatter. But as empty chatter, the apostle makes clear in that passage, it's not just some innocent, uh, inconsequential, inconsequential babbling, but it's godless chatter. And as Paul says, it leads to further ungodlessness. Talk which is gangrenous, talk which has cancerous effects, and ultimately, in that particular instance, leads to a denial of the basic uh, central Christian hope of the resurrection of the body. So while everything isn't spelled out in detail here, Paul's point is surely clear enough. And it's uh, this that we need to underline for ourselves. 
we can put it this way, moral and religious decline, if you want to make that sort of distinction, they go together. And they go together in the sense that we need to recognize that there is no such thing as a purely theological controversy. The longer I live, the more I'm convinced of that. And more perhaps uh, at hand to ourselves here, we need to remember that there is no such thing as purely theological study. And in particular, we need to remind ourselves that the failure to practice truth Moral decay, if you will, breeds religious and theological decline. Uh, many of you here will be aware that this institution was born out of struggle. It is the result of those who were determined at any cost to fight the good fight. And in that fight, uh, Machen and others particularly had to, had to contend uh, against this, this kind of uh, um, omnivorous, uh, amorphous specter of a doctrinalist Christianity. The notion that somehow you could have a Christian life without sound doctrine. And over against that front, uh, Machen contended always that doctrine is in order to life that there is no life without doctrine. But I think we can say that here in this passage, we see the other side, the flip side of that picture. The apostle is reminding us that there is no doctrine without life. We can say that orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right believing and right living, stand or fall together. A so-called dead orthodoxy is really non-existent. It's an illusion, or at the most, it's a contradiction that is on the way as a kind of a passing phase to becoming no orthodoxy. So I think we um, need to appreciate that a, that a constant um, and maybe peculiar threat to communities such as our own that is concerned to be orthodox, concerned to be doctrinally sound, a constant temptation threat is that as we contend for the truth in that way, we can be drawn to fall into patterns of behavior that are conscience-rejecting, conscience-searing. And that is a pattern of behavior the apostle wants to make clear to us, which will eventually bring us to the point, uh, to use Paul's language, where we may have the form of godliness, but deny its very power. Well, that's a sober note, but it's the note that I'll end on. And let us pray together. Lord our God, have mercy upon us. Lord our God, we ask that you will preserve us as your servants. Do for us, our God, what we are not able, certainly, to do for ourselves. Grant that each one of us here 
however you have, uh, from whatever you have called us and whatever you have in mind for us as your servants. Grant to us that we might be determined to fight the good fight. And our God, to that end, grant to us as well that we might hold on to faith and a good conscience. For Jesus' sake, amen.